The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to an awesome episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, uh, joined by my lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers. Uh, how are things going, Bethany? Things are going really well. Thanks, Brandon. So I know a couple episodes I talked about buying a bread machine. The newest one this weekend is I made my own yogurt. Okay. We've transitioned from bread to yogurt. Love it. It's um, remarkably easy. I would recommend it if for whatever reason you decide you need to make your own yogurt. Mine was some sort of economy push. I figured we should spend less on yogurt. Uh, okay. So in these tough times, uh, it's time to reduce the okay. <laughs> tough times. We get cheap yogurt. <laughs> My husband's like, oh, so we've saved 20p per pot of yogurt. Was <laughs> this really necessary? But yeah. And is that, has the flavor correspondingly decreased as well or? It, it tastes the same. Like I read all of these articles and it said that it's supposed to be the most amazing yogurt, super creamy, better than store in all kinds of ways. I taste no difference. Okay. I think we've uh, found our segue, which is, does one taste the difference, as it were, as we scale from 50 to 500 employees within a scale-up organization, which is our topic for today? And we have a phenomenal guest for this, Kirsten Shannon. Uh, but before we get to that, Bethany, I wanted to kick off with this uh, thought, which is when you get past 50 employees, roughly speaking, you start being asked questions at that point, which is things like, you know, how do we make decisions? How do we communicate decisions? Marketing is no longer playing well with product. What are the ways of working in the organization? What about my career path? What about performance management? What about policy A, B, and C? It goes on and on. And if you don't get ahead of this stuff, you end up being in a position where there is just a lot of confusion and complexity and conflict. So just teeing ourselves up here a little bit, what's your take on this, this thresholding of, of 50 employees and what, what happens after that? So I know that Kristen is talking from 50 plus. I read an article and it was years ago and it was talking about that Companies change when the number is a one and a three, starts with a one and a three. So one person to three, 10 people to 30, and then 100 people. And this has actually struck me as very true. I tend to join companies when they're about 30 people, and there's clearly a point there where you need some specialization. And then 30 to 50, I haven't noticed a massive difference, but when you get to about 100, the wheels start falling off if you don't have these processes in place. And then interestingly, at least for me, around 300 is when I stop enjoying the job. And I've always wondered if I stop enjoying it because it's four to five years in and I'm bored and overwhelmed and ready for a new challenge, or if there's actually something at 300 people where it becomes much more performative and less around knowing everybody in the organization, that is what I don't enjoy. So kind of sometimes would like that challenge. I'd like to start in fresh pair of eyes at 300 and see if I enjoy it or not. Okay. That would be an interesting experiment. 300 folks, fresh eyes from Bethany and seeing if you actually dig it uh, at that point. 
so with that, I wanted to move on and talk about something else and get your thoughts on this, Bethany, which is, in my view, there are three core tenets to set up organizational scaling success, regardless of whether it's 50, 100, or 300 employees. And I want to walk these uh, through with you and uh, to see what you think. So the first one really is uh, building a good structure and ways of working around the leadership team specifically. And in particular, what I think about here, which is incredibly important on the ways of working side, is this idea of trust, trust within the leadership team. Because I, I feel like each individual functional leader needs to be in a position to share, share concerns that they're having with their, their function, share concerns they're having with, with other functions within the business, and doing so in a way where they, they clearly feel the other team members have their back and will support them and will have a constructive, good, healthy conversation to really think through those challenges in a, in a positive way. And what you don't want to have happen is for that functional leader to to back away from that or shy away from that or obfuscate or position or what have you. And this topic of, of trust with a leadership team, I feel, is very applicable in terms of regardless of the scaling size. It's just a core tenet of success. And I'm just wondering what you think about this. It's challenging. It's not just challenging because you need to build trust within the organization or within the management team, but also you tend to have everybody being a specialist. And so they feel like both they feel personally responsible for what their team does. And then there's also a certain amount of like, don't step on my shoes. This is my patch. And can anybody actually help me? So it it's not just around building trust, but there's also a lot of needing to let go of ego so that you can listen, not feel threatened and realize that you're in a room full of bright people who might actually be able to help you. But the work is both the leader of the group's work to create a level of trust. And there's also work of every individual there to leave their ego at the door. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. The other one I was thinking about, and this is a bit, uh, might be controversial. I'm cu- curious what you're going to think, but classically speaking, in terms of a structure, you have ASLT, a senior leadership team, and you have representation across the business and the types of meetings that you run are, you know, you have agendas, you ideally have pre-reads of documents going into them to have a robust conversation and make decisions on behalf of the rest of the organization. That's perfectly fine, and that's a bit of a staple in all companies. Uh, what I've tended to find is that uh, having an informal chat with a couple members of that SLT, usually the C-suite individuals, on a weekly basis where you're out of the company, you're having coffee, it's informal, there's no agendas, and you as a C-suite uh, team, which is you know roughly, it depends on the size of the organization, but you might have two, three, four people that you're talking to. And really just having this organic conversation around concerns that you're having or wild thoughts that you're having around the business and, and so on. And I find that organic conversation on a weekly basis with a very small subset to just think about stuff is incredibly useful and, and really helps inform your thinking around the company in really very useful ways, in ways that I don't get from an SLT meeting. And, uh, and I'm just curious, curious what you think. I had that type of experience at New Voice Media because we were in the office probably two to three days a week altogether. And so it wasn't a formal time, but it happened. So it wasn't actually set and premeditated, but it would happen quite often where when we, when we happened to be together, you could have those informal conversations. And I agree with you. There was like some of the best work and thinking and progress was made in those. At peak, we never really managed it because we had such a dispersed team that you couldn't actually all go out for coffee once a week or do something informal. And I just think in Zoom, it's hard to replicate. And so 
I wonder in this new world of hybrid working and people being distributed, can you replicate it over Zoom? Is there some other way of doing it? Or is there something about actually being together in person? It's very difficult, I think, to replicate that in a Zoom Zoom environment. And to your point, I feel like the, I'm not sure to say this exactly, but like the feeling and emotion that one has when you're face-to-face, when you actually have legit concerns around you know, your role or your function or something that's happening in the business where you're not quite sure how to say it to the CEO. But in these uh, in this format, it somehow becomes doable or easier because you're having this bit of a back and forth and feeling each other out. And I think that face-to-face part of it really helps make that happen in a way that you can't replicate on Zoom. Might just be a sign of our age. It could be that, <laughs> could be that too. The last point that I wanted to make was, uh, or more of a question, I guess, I've always found it very useful for SLT members that don't have experience in the phase that you're in. So let's say you're in a Series B round, X amount of size of a company, they haven't done that before, to really give them access to outside coaching and counsel with someone that has been there and done that to help inform their thinking. And I've seen SLT members be radically successful where they haven't been a part of that phase before because they're very talented individuals, they have a growth mindset, and they can think through what needs to be done. But having that coach to really back them up really helps them as a marketer, as an example, to think through more finitely in the marketing function, what is it they need to be thinking about as they they grow into that that next phase. So I'm curious, maybe more broadly, just about this question of, do you need experience in the phase to be successful? And if not, why not? So this is really interesting. I guess to answer your first part of your question, do you need experience in the phase to be successful? No. Will, Will it take you a lot longer and will you make a lot more mistakes? And could you have done it better without some outside experience? Yes. <laughs> so I think that you you can do it. You just might not be the most efficient way. We're having a guest come on in a couple of weeks, Pete Crosby. And I had a chat with him when we were both CROs. And what he did at his company at the time was everybody on the SLT had to have a mentor who was 18 months ahead of them. And it was their responsibility to source a mentor see them regularly and learn. And basically, what should we do now that you wish in hindsight you had done? And so then they actually had part of their SLT meeting monthly was everybody getting together and sharing what they learned from their coaches. And that would, he said, it really shortened the mistakes, made them think about now things that people were feeling pain of in the future. And so, yeah, I think that's an awesome idea and something that companies can definitely use. All right, then I think we can wrap here. And with that, we will transition over to our interview with Kristen Shannon. Hi, everyone. I am thrilled to welcome Kristen Shannon to the show. Kristen is an expert operator and has been COO at multiple high growth companies. In one of her roles, she actually hired 800 people in a single year. Like the hiring of 800 people is pretty impressive. The idea of onboarding and retaining that many, I just can't even imagine. Kristen is now CEO at Highliner. Highliner is a consultancy that helps high growth businesses that have just raised their series A or B or large chunk of money scale effectively. She is sharing her wealth of expertise and knowledge with them. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I had an original question, which was basically, what's the difference between Series A and all the rest in terms of scaling? 
but I do just desperately want to know about the 800. So maybe I'll leave it to you to answer both of those questions in one. So the 800 is interesting because actually when I started in that organization, we were hiring 75 people a year and in itself, quite a lot of growth in a year, but not unbelievable. Like a lot of organizations hire at that level. And the most interesting part was I had gone away and taken, I had been head of recruitment, hiring 75 people and then growing that, growing that, and then went away, took a different role within the organization, doing more generalist ops, also had a baby. So went on mat leave and then came back and did a bit more time. And then we got to that 800. So the most interesting part about this is actually seeing when I got back and we were hiring at that scale, some of the same systems and processes we had put in place for 75 were still being used at 800. And I remember going around and saying to the team, why are we running this particular selection process for this type of candidate? And someone said, oh, it's, they had a really elaborate reason why. They were like, it's super important. We've always done it this way. And it really gets to the bottom of this, this, and this. And that's why we have to run it with this seven extra steps. And I looked at them and I go, that's not true. I had a really difficult senior manager who ran that unit like many years ago, who insisted doing it that way. And we did it for that person. But that actually, there's no necessary reason to run the process this way. That like this lore of why we do things isn't actually true. And to me, that was like the best experience because it taught me in scaling organizations that we've always done it this way is like the scariest thing to hear or the best trigger to know that you need to make some change. Because if you're doing this, things the same way you did it when you were hiring 75 people, it inherently won't work as it gets bigger. But organizations create this lore and this feeling of we must do things the way we have, and your processes just expand upon themselves. So for me, the biggest part of that learning was actually like at that scale, to be able to hit those numbers, we had to re we had to re-architect all of our processes. And for that particular organization, we held a lot of recruitment centrally with a centralized recruitment team. And at 800, we had to move it out to the divisions. And it, we had to push really hard. And we had a whole new different way of doing recruitment, which was basically very little done at the center, most of it done at each individual site and by each individual functional area. But I learned very rapidly, you actually have to like re-architect your process and systems fairly rapidly at each major inflection point. And probably it's not good enough to just amend them as you go. Sometimes you have to cut them and start again. I get that. As somebody who has experienced hypergrowth and probably being the difficult manager who wants to do it her way, I always find it hard to get rid of processes that I've designed because I feel like I'm owning that I have made a mistake, even though I know I haven't made a mistake and it was appropriate for the time, but I'm still often the blocker who doesn't let the process change. How do I get out of my own way? I feel like, as I said, I had this lucky pause, particularly by being away from the organization to be on mat leave. So I had this like actual very concrete pause in between, which I think you're right. It's so much harder as you're constantly iterating and iterating as you go. I'm really big as ops professionals setting your own cadence and your own like really rigorous reviews to things. So I don't think you can just magically as you're constantly iterating step by step, be like, this is the moment we change. Now I know this, I can get out of my way. I think you just have to have a like once a quarter, 
I, we do design thinking from scratch on X process or once a year as part of our annual strategic review, we also do a process review or I have milestones of hiring when we are at 50 people versus hundred people versus 200, every 50 people we add, that's when we look at this type of process or every X number of customers we add, that's when we look at this type of revenue process. So I don't think, I certainly could not, if I didn't have that gap, have gotten out of my own way and changed what I had already beautifully designed in some beautiful flow documents. Like they were lovely. I would have justified those until the end of time. But I think having that gap has taught me like, you have to build your own gaps. You have to build that cadence moment to fresh start review. And speaking of milestones, if we just uh, pull back for a moment and we baseline ourselves, maybe this conversation, this question of the inflection points, what are the actual inflection points? And I recognize this is not a science, but generally speaking, there's points in time when you grow headcount in a company where there is a change. You can feel it and you realize something has now shifted within the organization. And I've seen all sorts of inflection point numbers been tossed at me over the years. And you've done this for quite some time. What are the inflection points? And when you think through those inflection points, why are those the, the points at which things actually change in your view? Yeah, I've also seen a lot of different measures to this. And I think the, I'm not sure I have the right answer in terms of one that's used a lot. Reed Hoffman has a really good model for this that he's used in blitz scaling. So super simplified. And he starts with like families. So it's like single digit number of employees. That's a family. And I think that's a really good descriptor of like, we can all sit around one table. We all have some really core deep understanding because we've been through certain things together. Then he calls the next stage tribe which is like tens of people. And then after that, you get into village, which is hundreds of people. And then he has city, which is thousands. And then he has nations, which is tens of thousands. I think, I think that's a good like base framework. And I think that understanding of like family to tribe, to village, to city gives people like a nice feeling of how the relationships become one to many and start to spread out over time. I found there's a real inflection point and it's different depending on the organization and the rate of growth, but it's like that 30 to 50 when it's really, because I think up to 30, you can have that feeling of like, we're all around one table and now we're not quite, but we can kind of flex it to make it happen. We all still know each other fairly well. That starts breaking down around 50. And I think you start putting in certain like small organization processes in place to like soothe some of that communications pain usually. And then I would say, then when you're getting up to like 80 to 100 is your next point. And it's not when you hit the 80 mark and it's not when you hit the 100 mark. I think it's organizations that know that they're going to double again. When they start to get that 80, 100, they're like, whoa, there's already a lot of us. Doubling this up feels really big um, and a really massive thing to do. And then I would say the next one is like that's 300 getting it. And again, if you're 300 and you're staying at 300, I don't think it feels, I mean, there's a lot of change you're making, but it's that feeling of like, there is a ton of us now. And not only are we going to double this, we're likely going to be a several thousand person organization fairly soon. That's a jump we don't know how to make. So I think that's when those, when you start to feel it, but I think that's very much for scaling organizations. And I think it feels very different for organizations that are like, we're getting to this point and we're staying at that size. But I think it's that like that size plus the knowledge of you're doing that whole thing again feels really big. 
Yeah. And maybe one aspect. Uh, so that's a perfect answer. I love that answer. One specific slice of interest is the uh, the siloization effect. Uh, and you see this in companies that roughly get to that 50-person mark. And then from that point, it just simply gets worse if you don't address it. The, the siloization piece of it. Can you maybe talk us through how do you set yourself up to ensure that does not happen, especially as you hit those inflection points that you spoke about? I think it's really natural for organizations to get siloed. If you think about how we build our companies in the early stages and how we recruit, we move from generalist to more specialized people coming into the organization. And you generally are just adding more and more of them. So you're adding in your units, you're adding in engineering, you're adding in marketing, you're adding in sales. I think what also happens in scaling organizations that's different is you're adding whole new units. So when you started, maybe your sales is the founder, and then suddenly it's a team of 20 which has, they have different targets. They have different goals. Everyone should have very clear aligned, aligned direction and incentives, but ultimately it's all slightly different. So I think it's a really natural thing to happen, but therefore, because it's so natural, you have to fight really hard against it. And I think of it in two ways you fight against it. One is a lot of clarity of those aligned incentives and aligned objectives and direction. So being really clear what the organization is pulling towards. So yes, your marketing team might be very focused on brand building and your sales team might have a lead target versus a brand target. But above that, everyone should be really clear about how those two different things are feeding together into your overall revenue targets, your overall presence targets, all those things. What is the priority for the company should be really clear. So I think having the like, what we're all doing and the direction is really important and really hard. And I bet we'll talk about OKRs at some point <laughs> related to this because uh, all of people love to talk about OKRs. The other thing is what at Highliner we call ways of working. So this is, and this is how we break down operations. So a lot of people think of operations as systems and process, which is one of our five ways of working. But we also think of, so it's systems and process, tools, roles and responsibilities, cadence, and mechanisms, which are like the informal habits of the business. And I think being very intentional about your organizational cadence, being very intentional about roles and responsibilities, particularly, and by roles and responsibilities, I don't just mean like, here's a job description for every person when they start. What I really mean is in a constantly shifting environment, how do we talk about what our role is both at a like company level. And then how do we also talk about what our role is project by project? So simple things like racy, or even if it's just like, what is our informal and codified language that we always use when we are talking about new projects and setting new things up? So I actually think the biggest things are not your tools, not your system and process, but it is your roles and responsibilities and your cadence and your informal habits, those shared language and mechanisms. And then tools and systems and process should support those things. So I find you get, everyone gets tons of tool proliferation, like in every side, I know another COO at a post C, like quite far along company. And we were talking and she was like, I have a thousand SaaS tools. <laughs> I don't even have, like, I don't even know what to do with all of these. And she's like, and 20 of them are project management tools. So Yes, that definitely needs to be addressed. But I think if you start with the tools, you're missing something big. And the big thing is like, what's our roles and responsibilities and how we interact and what we're responsible for and what's the cadence by which we communicate and stay on top of everything. So that I like to start there 
and then systems process tools follow from that. I am. Um completely understand on the tool side, sympathize on that. I I feel like also in particular sales teams, sales leaders are the most gullible of all people to be sold to. I don't know how they're like, you know, you should be the most cynical. You should be the ones that you don't, but they're like, oh no, this reporting tool is going to mean that I absolutely hit forecast every time. And this tool is going to be, and then they don't use any of them because they actually still have to do the cadence that's boring in order to make the tools work. Anyhow, it's my little side note on completely agree with you on the tools. (laughs) Bethany, have you used Gong? I do know Gong, yeah. I think that's an interesting tool. If you think it's going to replace your your coaching and training of your sales team, that's a terrible use of that tool. However, if it enhances really good and meaningful, I've seen it used in organizations where they really helpful and a cornerstone to like improve coaching. That's great. But yeah, it can't coach for you. It can give you information to help you coach. And it can't be your first step towards coaching. So if you have no coaching cadence, if you have no coaching culture and scale, and then suddenly you're like, no, Gong's going to fix it all. It's not. It's just going to be another tool. Whereas you need it to be, now we can do coaching better. Kind of back to one of the first things you said around key roles to hire at scale, because that just piqued my interest and I'd love to talk about it. I'll just give you a little background on my own experience. So I basically find that around 300, 350 people, I lose pleasure in working. And I don't know if that's just because it's like the five-year mark and I'm tired and it just happens to also be that many people. So it's part of me would love to like start at 300 when I have loads of energy and see if I really like it. But then there's another part that feels like you end up spending a tremendous amount of time being a minor celebrity and having to watch exactly what you say which I really don't like. Like, I just like to say what I want to say. One of the roles that we ended up hiring for was an internal comms person. She's the most amazing human in the world anyhow, but then also like it just took so much off senior leadership's plate. So I'm going to say maybe hiring an internal comms is a key hire, but what are some of those other hires that you're just like, oh my God, how do we survive without it? And at what stage do we hire them? I'm going to be biased, but you two are both going to agree with my bias. So it's fine. <laughs> I think like <laughs> companies that don't have COOs yet, I'm like always very anxious about. I mean, we work with them a lot, but to me, and it's actually, it's not even the title of COO. When I look at the composition of a leadership team at that scale, I don't know if you both read the book, probably Rocket Fuel. Really, I think it's a really good operator's book. And I think it describes it very well. This like the visionary versus the integrators, like the people that pull things together. And when I look at a leadership team, a scaling leadership team, post B, post C, already 300, couple hundred people adding a lot more, where's my balance of visionaries and integrators? Where are my like doers? my functional doers, where are my people pulling things together across the board? Um, And then where are the people that are like still driving the innovation, the big picture, the like, where are we headed in inspiration? Because that like minor celebrity bit that you talk about is, is a very real thing. And I just think it's way before 300. I think for CEOs, like at 10 people, there's this like CEO aura that starts building around them that I think can be very weird and hard for a lot of CEOs to like even realize has happened, that the meaning of what they say, I think it started extending to other execs as you get bigger and bigger. But to me, I'm looking for like, it's less about what is the role and it's more about the balance 
of those things, the visionaries that can still like play that minor celebrity role and inspire, as well as the integrators who can do things across. And then you need these really like functional skills. Like at that point, you are too big to have just generalists. So you do need people that need a certain type of expertise. And that I think it think is very much more organizational dependent. So like a fintech at that scale, you'd be thinking that they have a lot more people with a banking backgrounds. However, I do know a lot of scaled fintechs who have really struggled with this, where they hit a certain size and they're like, we need banking execs. And so they go and hire a bunch of banking execs. And their whole thing was that they were like neobanks. They were counter to being banks. And their organization and culture was built around the opposite of that. So if you then suddenly just are like, I'm going to, yeah, I'll just like, drop them in and it will all be fine. It won't be. And I think that's why this like 300 stage is so interesting because you're starting to bring in a lot of leadership from maybe external places, maybe functional experts, but you haven't always thought about like, how do I actually bring them into this organization? Like how do they need to change and how do we need to change to make this team actually work together? So I think actually at that stage, being super intentional about your exec onboarding is really, really important. So it's, it's less about like, you should have that person in, in the role or this role should be covered. It's more about like, how are you finding your gaps and then bringing people in to fill it in a way that the, doesn't feel like that the organization doesn't do like organ rejection to them. Because I think that's a very common thing to happen at that stage. And then maybe to double click on, on Bethany's comment, the mini celebrity factor, and probably the more important bit, I suppose, is people really reading a lot into what you say, misinterpreting what you say, the cues and behaviors that you demonstrate in the office, it all gets, you're, you're being watched. And it's very easy for things to be interpreted in ways that are not helpful. Perhaps, you know, the, the product leader has said this, and the, the engineering leader has said that. And both actually were trying to say the same thing, but it's interpreted as being different. And therefore, the, the teams on the ground are then at that point, you know, there's a bit of a back and forth. How do you avoid all of that? What's the best way to approach this? Yeah, I love the idea of the internal comms person, because again, that's like a functional expert that can help you share, can help you understand how you are communicating with people. And I think even if you don't have that role, that expertise is really useful. So getting people in to... A, I think just having open and honest discussions about this. I think this is something about being an exec in a larger organization that people don't expect and we and they kind of live the pain before they realize it when we should just talk about it more. We should just be like, this is part of being in this role and you need to prepare for it. So I think it's something like through having like experts, but also just having that open conversation around it as a team. I think this is a place where coaches can be super helpful because it is just such a personal and odd experience. And it can be really difficult when you're like, why are people assuming these negative things or why are they assuming these positive, like both sides of it can personally feel very odd. So I think coaching can be really, really helpful for execs at this stage. So I would say, yeah, my biggest tips on this is like coaching and mentoring plus open and honest discussions as a leadership team about where and how this is happening. And then that gives you the tools to have more direct and honest conversations with your team. And it makes you more aware of what you're showing and what you're saying to the team. Very simply, what we say for our founders at every stage is we have very clear processes and shared language around like Slack use and framing on Slack. So I think like the easiest, most simple, like non-stressful example of this is the founder who puts 
a like, hey, I read this article up on Slack. And then like later in the day, you're like, hey, so-and-so, did you get that task done? And you're like, no, but here's a two-page like set of comments on that article you said. And like five different people have done that. And you're like, oh shoot, I just read that article last night. I thought like, it's not even related to our work. It's just vaguely interesting. And yet people are like, taken this example and been like, oh, I see what you meant here, the parable. And you're like, oh God, no, it's just about fun things to do in London. Like, oh. <laughs> we've all been there. <laughs> we've all been there. And so we have a very, all of our founders, we have them do this. We have like super simple framing for when they put stuff on Slack, which is, and we have them introduce it to the organization as organizational wide shared language that everyone should use. So it doesn't feel like stark or harsh, but when they share anything, they share it as for information, like for interest. I thought this was like, and it'd be very much like for interest. You may like this, like for information relevant to such and such or for action need comments from. And then I make them be very explicit about like who, which teams or where they must get feedback from it um, and who they're looking to respond to it. And then as you get bigger, it's like open conversations about it and coaching to help you understand how you're communicating. This is one of these things that I talk about and Brandon and I have talked about it. And yet I feel like it can never be said too much. It's like, it's all about people and it's all about people's trauma that they're bringing with them. Trauma being used in like the modern sense of it rather than the original sense, like hurt. So how much of your time is spent actually rolling out cadences and processes and hints? And how much of your time is spent helping people be better leaders or like working through the baggage that they're taking with them? So we always say operations. Again, everyone thinks operations is a system and process. And we're like, it is not. Operations is where people meet systems and process. So when we do a project with a company, we might be like, okay, we're doing cadence. We're rolling out a new way that we're going to do. We're going to do OKRs. We're going to roll out a new way that we're going to do OKRs. The vast majority of the time is spent on like the change management aspect and how people are going to adopt to something new. And that we spend a lot of time not taking for granted that the rate of change in the organizations we're working with is rapid. And I think actually that goes back to like one of the big differences between A and then post B, C, that like several hundred difference is you have the same rate of change as you had early stages when you were finding product market fit, but you don't have that same level of like excitement in the same way. Like at the beginning, it's new, we're building something. So you have same intensity of change, but a lot more of like hard changes at that stage. So we, the majority of any project is about the people. And they're like, how do we help people move through this change that they're making, both at a whole organization level? How do you do that as a whole company? And then also with the leadership team. And I say a lot to our founders that the hardest thing about being a leader in a scaling organization is everything that made you successful a year ago, six months ago, may or may not even be useful to you at this next stage. So the skills you need to find product market fit are not the skills you need to scale. And sometimes for some early execs, that means like, great, that realization means that I like, actually, that's what I love doing. And I'm going to go, I'm going to run a different part of the org in a different way. I'm not going to keep being the CEO or the COO or 
head of sales or whatever the exec role is, I'm going to go move into a different position. Or others are like, okay, I now understand it's a very big change framework that I have to make and go through. So I think, yeah, I agree completely. Operations is just about people. And we spend all of our time helping people through change. And I think the COO role is just helping people through change. I think it's the understanding the organization and being one of the few people that sees how everything's fitting together and can fit together. And then understanding where your people are in that and how you help move them through it. But it's a lot of listening. It's a lot of like, it's a lot less process flow documentation building and a lot more conversation and a lot more going through things with people. I just think we need to like underpin that because it is, we were talking about OKRs and we had an entire episode. We might be having it in the future, depending on when these drop and when we decide to load them. So apologies if we're actually talking about next week's episode and not last week's. Jenny is talking about how she worked with one leadership team that had their own OKR, which was basically working through the Lencioni five dysfunctions of a team. But by making it an OKR, they carved out time and gave themselves permission to work on themselves as people and a team. And I just think every team should do that. Like, because I just remember when I was a junior, the idea of people mattering was very confusing. And it was like, if I got really good at something, my career would go up. And then the more senior you get, the more you're like, actually, I'm an expert in who knows what. It doesn't matter. What really matters is how I deal with people. And it's like giving ourselves permission to realize that that is the point of our job. And so I just wanted to like, that's what you've just said, Kristen. And I just want all of our listeners to hear. You're allowed to work on yourself and you're allowed to work on your teams. And it doesn't have to be after hours. Just to take the conversation in a new direction, this question comes up all the time with peers that I have historically, which is they, they don't feel or they don't feel sharp enough in the organization, a real sense of accountability and cascaded accountability across, you know, down through teams and so on. So when you hear this accountability question coming from your client as an example, what goes into motion in your mind in terms of approaches, systems, processes, people at that point? Yeah, I think accountability, what I say to my clients a lot is if our problem around accountability was that the people who we feel are not being accountable or not delivering, we actually thought they were like at home taking naps and eating bonbons all day. Like that actually would be a fairly easy problem to solve because we just be like, just stop doing that, like get more work done. That's never the accountability issue in a scaling org. I mean, it might like once in a very rare world be that, but really what's happening is you have a bunch of really committed people working really, really hard and things are still not happening and things are still not getting done. And so that's a much harder problem because you can't just say, Hey, like head of engineering, I know you're killing yourself and working crazy hours but you're not being accountable because you aren't delivering what we need. And so to me, it comes down to like to create accountability in rapidly scaling organizations. A lot of it has to come down to focus. And I think the leadership team has to take a really hard look at what are they asking teams to prioritize and when, and that's where I like to start when there's accountability issue. It's actually not in the roles and responsibilities. I like to start with like, what is our process around prioritization and deprioritization? So when we pick something else as new, how do we communicate that? And then we go into roles and responsibilities. So having clear understanding about who is responsible for what and having 
like it, I know it's old school. Like this is not brand new to have racy or to have like, I mean, there was multiple similar frameworks and rapid racy, like you can pick any of them, but I do think there's something about creating a shared language project by project that you use about like who, wait, who actually is the person that is going to like drive this forward, be responsible. Is there a different person that's the decision maker? Who else do we need to bring into the loop on this? And therefore, what dependencies have I created to create problems? But I think a lot of it before all that comes down to like, what are we prioritizing? What is our process around prioritization and helping the organization focus? And if we feel we're really tight on that, and then, and we're really tight on who is responsible for each thing, and then we're still not delivering. Actually, it's an easier problem. That's a management problem to solve. That's a like, that is helping individual managers work with individuals who to find out what their individual blockers are. But usually it's actually a bigger organ. If you start there, then you'll find that each individual is like, I am working really hard. I did this and this and this instead. Did you not want me to? So I think it's about like focus and then mechanisms around like fluid roles and responsibilities. And I like, yeah, either rapid or racy works quite well for those. Okay. So if we had maybe one, one example to throw into the mix here, and this is maybe a bit of a segue into OKRs, you know, we think about the, the OKR check-ins that companies do. So as an example, you check in once a month with leadership being there with the wider team or the squad to talk about their particular objective and sense of results and where they're at for the month and what that progress looks like a little bit. That that forum by which you have that has a whole bunch of folks involved in terms of the meeting itself. What is the purpose of that meeting as an example in this case of accountability? Should you be holding that team to account in that progress review or does that happen elsewhere? And if it does happen there, what's the way in which you would approach that, uh, do you think? Yeah, I think it, I think it does happen there. And when we work with organizations on, and we don't always do OKRs. I'm not a like I'm not an OKR evangelist. <laughs> like I think they're good in some organizations. I think the spirit of them versus the law is better on them. But when we talk about, and again, you go back to like it's all about people. It's not just about the process. We actually spend a good amount of time with the leader who's going to be running that meeting. And we talk about like, how do you question effectively in this meeting? How do you hold people to account and really dig into the reasons why things weren't done? And I think like getting into that retro piece of like, why were things not, we thought we were going to be here and we're not there, like digging into that. And then I think if you do that in a collegial way and everyone is used to doing that and peers can do that of each other, especially if the answer isn't always going to be like, I didn't do it because I was eating bonbons and napping. Like the answer was there were going to be real blockers. Then that I think helps create the, the space to have that accountability and say those things. And then I, the second part of that though, this is from Amazon. So Amazon has this like really strong, cultural value around good intentions don't solve problems, but mechanisms do. This is where we took mechanisms from, is from Amazon. Um, And so it's like, so what are we putting in place to solve for this next time? So if you're doing that, going through your OKRs and actually they're not being hit because the blocker was actually we were pulled by this other team because this other team needed that. 
A, are you going to accept that's how it goes? Or are you going to put in something different? Are you going to change that like two members of the engineering team spend more time on CS? Or we're going to hire more engineers to be third line support because the customer support team doesn't need it, needs more help. Or we need to hire a different type of customer support person. Or the sales team actually shouldn't be putting requests like that right to engineering. They should be going through the customer success team. What's our process and mechanism? What's our formal thing that we're going to put in place to help them do that? So I think we've all been in those OKR meetings where it's like, oh, we didn't make it. We didn't come close. Like, And I know OKRs are supposed to be stretched, so you don't make them at 100% hit them anyways. But I still think like that interrogation of like what are our blockers and then solutions and mechanisms and actively putting those in place and actively taking that org learning has to be core to that. But again, that comes a lot down to the strength of the leader running the meeting. And that is a very like, that's a difficult meeting to run, I think, and run well. It is. I think that one of the tricks to that is separating the person from the activity. So it's not like, you know, you're eating bonbons, therefore you're lazy. It's more, what are the blockers? Why is the system falling apart? What was it that meant that you couldn't do what you were intending to do? And that just takes some of the sting out and chills everyone out and people are slightly less defensive. But as a leader, you need to be pointing it out and framing it in that way. Unless of course they are eating bonbons, but to your point, then it's a lot easier to solve that problem. And that's a management problem and you solve that separately. And so that actually, if you know that's the problem, that you don't do in that meeting. That is a separate, like that's a one, again, I am big on like, you don't reprimand publicly. But again, I just think it's so rarely the case that that's the problem. It's almost always like people not having what they needed or pulled in multiple priorities. Absolutely. So Kristen, unfortunately, we're running out of time and we all have hard stops coming up. So two questions. I'm going to tell you both now so that we can just kind of aim for our timing. The one is you're amazing. You know so much. You're a great expert. If people want to work with you, how do they get in touch? And are there any resources for people who want to learn from you that you can share? And then the final question is, if our listeners are just going to take one thing away from today's discussion, what is that one thing they should know? So I, if people want to get in touch with us, um, they can email me directly at Kristen at HighlinerTechnology.com. They can go on our website, HighlinerTechnology.com and find us there. I am always keen to talk to other ops people and to other founders. I think these, whether we end up working with people formally or just for an informal coffee, everyone, please reach out. I'm always keen to talk to people. We also, in terms of kind of information that could be helpful, if you follow us on LinkedIn, we put content out as everyone does, but also we run a bunch of workshops um, with different people and on different operations topics. So we open those up to the kind of wider community. So we're always happy to have people join those. So if you follow us on our LinkedIn, on Highlander on LinkedIn, then that is an easy place to find that. And my absolute biggest takeaway is still like, I think one that we all agree with so firmly, which is operations is about where people meet systems and process, not about systems and process. Like it is really about the people and about how you help people go through the rapid change that is the high growth organizations we all work in. And that's how you can make your organization successful. That's how you make your culture successful. That everything stems from like, how are you helping your people go through that rapid change? 
Perfect. Uh, I think my takeaway from today is all about uh, bonbons and perhaps finding a bonbon to to have as a snack at some point later today. <laughs> I was also thinking that. I was like, oh, could I start eating more bonbons and napping? That sound like, now that I've mentioned it, it does sound like a good idea. <laughs> I, I can imagine a blog at some point, uh, Kristen, around bonbons and accountability or something like that. I don't quite know. But Kristen Shannon, thank you very much. That was a wonderful, uh, amazing conversation. Uh, and if you like what you hear on the Operations Room, uh, please subscribe or leave us a comment. And we will see you next week. <laughs>